there is this issue where there's a reverence for suffering. The romanticism around artists being kind of self-destructive, the idea that it's cool as an artist to mess yourself up. It's something I think about a lot because I hate the idea of romanticizing mental health because like when my mental health is at its worst, I don't make art and I can't make art. You have to, you have to embrace the darkness as, as well. Like there's nothing worse than someone saying, oh, cheer up, you know, just, just be happy. It's like, it's not as easy as that. Even though my work explores um, these ideas, like when I'm at my worst, I'm not even doing anything about them. Art is too important, I think, to be diminished in that way. Maybe there is some truth to it, but there's also some like toxicity to it. I'm Billy Childish. I'm a painter who decided to become an artist after learning about Vincent van Gogh's life when I was a nine-year-old kid. I myself suffered a serious breakdown a year ago. Here, we are looking at the myth of suffering for your art. And there is probably no artist we associate more closely with these ideas than Vincent van Gogh. When you know something about the biographical circumstances, the life um, that was going on when a work of art is painted, it's almost impossible not to read things into that painting. And of course, because we have this incredibly intimate account of van Gogh's life in his own words, that happens an awful lot. Carol Jacobi works at Tate Britain. She is the curator of the EY exhibition, Van Gogh and Britain. Oh, there was such a prolific period of Van Gogh's life, but after just a few months, he shot himself and died of his wounds two days later. People were fascinated by the connection between Van Gogh's death and these very late works. Our idea of the sort of maverick artist like Giacometti or Francis Bacon very much sort of grew up in between the wars and Van Gogh's letters and his life really acted as a kind of model for that kind of artist. During the Second World War, I think this deepened. Van Gogh was very much, he was, he was included in an exhibition called Tragic Artists, for example, and he was very much seen as somebody who fought for his art, for his individuality against all odds. His life has been thought of as a failure. He's often described as a tragic artist. But Van Gogh thought about this quite carefully. He actually very much decided not to seek a middle-class life, but to live a working life amongst working people. And he saw this as a success. He saw this as doing what he wanted to do. Artistic creativity and mental health problems are often seen as connected maybe because a lot of art is by its nature an exploration of the inner self. This is something that Vincent van Gogh thought about a lot. In his letters, he discusses, you know, is there association between madness and creativity? And he comes to the conclusion that actually there isn't, that the problem with being an artist is that very often made you a kind of outsider of society, it very often made you appear to not have the values that society necessarily respected, and that that sometimes came across as, as madness, perhaps. But it was really more that artists could quite often find themselves alienated or marginalised. One of the really striking things that came out of my research with artists and all the artists I interviewed was making art being an artist doesn't make you mentally ill. Alistair Gentry. I'm a performance artist. I work with 
data, digital things. I like messing around with technology and making it do things it shouldn't. Alistair has spent a lot of time thinking about how mental illness interacts with being an artist. I myself have suffered from depression. Artists suffer from mental illness in the same proportions as everybody else, which is about one in four, famously, there's that statistic. So probably one in four artists are suffering or will suffer from a mental illness. Um, But the way many artists are forced to live precariously, overworked, underpaid, with sketchy institutional support, in placed in competition with, with each other constantly, all of those things make suffering from a mental illness far worse. In 2018, Alistair wrote an article for AN, the Artists' Information Company, a membership organisation for artists and arts workers. The article was titled Artists and Mental Health, Depression is Neither Romantic Nor Inevitable. In it, he describes the damage done when we let artists burn out and become ill. The art world and academia often give the impression it's productive or even necessary for an artist to go crazy. The mental illness that contributed to the untimely deaths of artists like Mark Rothko or Vincent van Gogh are depicted as a prerequisite of their brilliance rather than an invisible, misunderstood and stigmatised disability. He describes feeling like he's putting his own career at risk by talking about his depression and highlights a troubling duality. We romanticise the mental health struggle of artists from history, yet stigmatise mental illness among living artists today. The response to it was huge, both in terms of the kind of scene response to it, but also privately I got an absolute torrent of messages, mainly from other artists. Some I knew, most I didn't. Artists who had every mental illness or condition you could possibly imagine you know talking about everything from postnatal depression to kind of compulsive behaviors self-harm you know you name it whatever you can think of and they were all suffering in secret because they didn't dare say anything they were so afraid of people and and the few times or the few people that had said anything about it um they'd had such a negative response If you Google Alistair's name, one of the first pictures you will find is Alistair standing in front of Van Gogh's famous painting, Self-Portrait with Bandaged Ear. He's wearing the same fur hat as Van Gogh, with a white bandage wrapped around his own head. Strangely, I had all the stuff to do uh, Vincent Van Gogh cosplay at home, strangely, which I hadn't planned, but I did. I was, I think probably I was actually feeling quite depressed at the time, so I looked at that picture and I just thought about how many times it's been reproduced to represent him and that that was not all there was to his life you know actually if you read his letters for example there's a lot of joy there you know he talks about um just the beauty he saw in the world and just going out to the fields and painting and just experiencing the things that as artists we are privileged to have access to so I just sort of spontaneously did it except you know I'm sort of grinning like an idiot and like giving a thumbs up and um just sort of defiantly in my own kind of really tiny way sort of saying yeah no, there's more to it than this. People have been writing about Van Gogh since before he died 
probably no artist has attracted so much inquiry and curiosity and analysis. And so it's really difficult to imagine that there's anything new to know about him. When he's in Paris, his colours have just blossomed into the beautiful colours we associate with Impressionist painting. Uh, his brushstrokes have become much more kind of lively. He moves on to the south of France, and there he really develops his mature style that we really kind of um, associate with Van Gogh, where you get these wonderful, angular, forceful compositions. The colours became even more vibrant, even more decorative. The brushstrokes become even more forceful and dynamic. After the onset of his mental illness, and um, particularly after he's moved into the hospital at Saint-Rémy to try and recover, his brushstrokes take on this extraordinary um, wavering, writhing, rhythmic quality, so that all the different parts of the picture almost seem to be dancing with each other. When I was doing my first degree, I did one of my placements on a, a long-stay psychiatric uh, unit in Sydney. Victoria Tischler is a professor of arts and health. She's a psychologist and mental health researcher with a special focus on creativity and dementia. And I remember sitting with various of the patients and this one chap in particular um, who was very restless and I, you know, I was really struggling to find a way to, to be with him, to connect with him. And because I was interested in art and creativity, I just got out some art materials and started to draw. This guy just kind of stopped and became really attentive and drew the most incredible, complex drawings. You know, if you want to psychoanalyze it, it was very much about his mental state and about communication and about his incarceration. And really that what he was drawing, you know, spoke volumes, spoke much more than I could communicate with him in words. And also seemed to have a very calming effect, so it seemed to help him emotionally. And there I found a way to kind of be with someone and connect and clearly it was having some kind of therapeutic value even though I didn't know why. Victoria says the importance of creativity to our well-being is now so well recognised, perhaps soon we could see GPs sending people with mental health issues to life drawing classes. She also believes we need to be careful about how ideas like these get put into practice. Anything that makes high quality creative activities more widely available to people is a good thing but I also know that you know the government keep talking about this and they're talking about funding these link workers at general practice surgeries but they're not talking about any extra money for the creative people who are going to provide these services. We come back again to the idea that artists should be properly supported and valued in society. There's a danger of us instrumentalising artists too when they're seen as something you can prescribe, like a dose of medication, you can have a dose of arts. And I think that really doesn't do justice to the many faceted benefits of being creative. We need to find a way to work together that values people's training and the um, intrinsic skills and qualities they bring. 
art was Van Gogh's contribution to humanity and he made the decision very early on that he wanted to be a painter of the people for the people. As soon as there's the opportunity in any kind of cultural society, artists arise. Looking after yourself and caring for yourself as the first act of creativity is super important as a, a basis for being creative. When I'm teaching, I, I don't propose myself as some kind of infallible genius. It would be really good if we could just openly talk about mental illness without having to romanticize it or be scared of it. I will say I'm not feeling too great today or, you know, this thing happened to me and it was all, you know, just being really honest about it to kind of say, you can do the same thing, let's be honest together. We need to do much more to celebrate and support artists who are with us. The potential of art to represent inner experience, to be cathartic, um, and to be valuable for each individual is, um, is something that I'm really interested in. So can creativity be a form of therapy? The series before it that I did was called Catharsis and I was actually exploring the idea of like what it means to make work and um, how it can be a cathartic process to make work. I'm Shadi Alatallah. I'm a London-based artist and I explore my own personal kind of identity and my mental health and my gender identity, my sexuality, and just my like everyday life, basically. I mostly work with um, paints. I create like large life-size drawings and and paintings, and um, I use it to understand like like how I am and why I am. So I guess I've always been just drawn in general to like explore things that I go through. When I create it, I'm not sure what I'm creating. And then when I see it like on the walls, I'm like, really? Like, did I actually put that out there? But I guess in the moment, I just lose myself. It's a way to not only understand yourself, but kind of let go of, of kind of suppressed feelings, if you're going to talk about it in a psychological way. I was looking at that, but while I was looking at my own feelings as well. So like the subject is my own ideas and feelings, but I'm also dissecting my own feeling at the moment while creating it. It's vulnerable and it was scary. Like when I first started to do it, I wasn't confident in putting myself out there. I just felt like I was being kind of too much. I guess you always feel like you're too much when you're depicting your pain or wild like thoughts about life. I started doing it when I was studying in Camberwell, which was like, I always speak about it negatively, obviously, because I just didn't have any support when I was studying there. And I did it out of frustration, not out of like um, an environment that was supporting me. My tutors hated it and they wanted to put it at the back, like in the degree show. And it was just, it was really horrible. When I started to kind of look into myself more and be truthful, to myself, it just felt like authentic and I wasn't scared anymore. Slowly, I started to become more honest. We use metaphors to kind of hide how we really feel. I find it really hilarious that in this moment in time, these two words rhyme and it makes no sense to anyone, but I'm entertaining myself. To say those things, I think, is, is more vulnerable to, than to be like, I'm sad. Because for me, my vulnerability isn't being sad or being depressed or being suicidal. My vulnerability is is in the is in the other side of like really weird thought patterns that I can't put into words. Sometimes it's like overspending and like being hypersexual. And I think these are things that we're really, really scared to talk about. And we really stigmatize it in society. 
it's not wrong to speak about it. It's not saying like every bipolar, every person with bipolar needs to be creative or to just generalize the illness as like a creative romanticized illness. But um, to kind of see the positives in it is not a negative thing. And to also acknowledge someone's mental illness in their history is really important too. It's part of their identity, it's what they went through and it's part of their artistic process too. It's not about suffering, it's about creating and like giving birth to something new that people haven't seen before. I always use the example of, I like to tell stories. This is Benji Jeffrey. And if something negative does happen to me or something embarrassing happens to me, I will tell that story like 10, 20, 30 times. And the more and more I tell it, the better and better I become at telling that story until it becomes something totally separate. And it feels like I'm like moulding together this bowling ball. And then eventually I got the story completely right and I like roll it and I get a strike. And it's like, it's nothing to do with me anymore. This negative experience has become a positive thing that's like an icebreaker. Benji is an artist with a wide range of interests. I also kind of uh, compose and I play the violin and I do bits of teaching and I do drag. Uh, and I guess increasingly over time, everything that I do is kind of folding into my practice. Lately, he has been giving lectures on a popular music course at Goldsmiths in London. One thing that's come up within that is the kind of feeling that people need permission to be able to feel joy, to kind of promote enthusiasm and to be able to have friendship within what they're doing because there is this narrative that one must be individual and must be dealing with things on their own and must be really theoreticizing everything they do rather than going with what is kind of integral to, to them. And I think particularly with, within arts education, there is this issue where there's a reverence for suffering which isn't massively useful. And that's not to say that um, if you have something that makes you suffer, if you're in a position in society, which means that you are somehow considered to be less than, you can use that in a way that kind of helps expose those ideas. But I think sometimes people go out and um, they seek suffering in order to be able to create something. Benji thinks we need to reconsider how we think about the creative process. I try and propose joy as something that is useful and as something that is not stupid, that can be intellectual, <laughs> and that to look after your mental health and to care for yourself, first of all, is going to be more conducive to you making something that is right for you. You need to fold self-care into the process. If it is that isolation is something difficult for you, you need to fold in a way that isolation doesn't become something that's part of it and bring other people in. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be making something with music. Rose can come in and uh, do, do some music and, oh, Mike would be really great to, to come and do this as well. And, ah, oh, do I need some illustrations? Penny can come. And, you know, thinking about it in a way that, that, that will bring everyone else's joy and enthusiasm together. You know, rather than as kind of having this narrative of suffering, wouldn't it be great if, if the, the, the narrative was this person really enjoyed paint and then their friends would get together once a week and they would play with paint once a week. And like, for me, that's like so exciting and so lovely and, and so uplifting.
you have to let the work do the talking. His, his pictures do have the most extraordinary way of just reaching out and speaking to people very, very directly. He so often represents incredibly ordinary and familiar things, like, for example, in the exhibition we have the view out of his back window. We have his very famous painting of his shoes. The humanity that comes through Van Gogh's work, I think, is the sort of first thing that strikes viewers. Within kind of creative practice, things are often quite ambiguous. There's no right or wrong. It turns things on its head and really challenges dominant paradigms and ideologies. I find it hilarious when I get in that state. It's also destructive to myself, but when I look back on it, I feel happy that I was able to create something out of an odd state of, of being. You know, to just go out and look at things and try to interpret them and share them with other people, you know, that's certainly why I make the work I do. I think it, is, it always comes back to me down to joy, enthusiasm and, and friendship. They're, they're three things. And it's really difficult saying that without sounding like super twee, but I think they are really important and, and being nice. And that, that's not just being nice to other people, it's being nice to yourself. The institutions we work with, the colleagues we work with, all need to really stop talking so much about diversity and listening and supporting and put their money where their mouths are and um, pay people properly, support people properly, make sure their workplaces are supportive and diverse for everybody. Art of Creativity is a tape podcast produced by Arlie Adlington. It was a boom shakalaka production with music by Blue Dot Sessions and Arlie Adlington. If you want to find out more about mental health support that's available, you can visit mind.org.uk or mentalhealth.org.uk. The EY exhibition, Van Gogh and Britain, runs at Tate Britain from the 27th of March to the 11th of August 2019. The exhibition is part of the EY Tate Arts Partnership with additional support from the Van Gogh Exhibition Supporters Circle, Tate International Council and Tate members. The media partner is The Times and The Sunday Times. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe.